So real quick, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you guys about Exodus and what we're going to do with this book, and then I'm going to pray and we'll go into this evening's text, Exodus 5 through 12, which is the 10 plagues. So there is this phenomenon, a very negative phenomenon within Christianity in which you meet Jesus, the power of God, and you have some sort of uh, experience. You realize that you're redeemed, you're delivered, you're saved from something, and you recognize that there's forgiveness and his grace comes into your life. And then, so that's over here. And then over here, there's this image of what's supposed to happen. The ideal of how God's power is actually working in your life and through your life and how you're producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that God is somehow leading you and, and, and you're loving people and you're reconciling relationships and there's forgiveness and there's just the power of the spirit of God in your life. But what we realize, especially in our experience, is that from the moment of meeting God to experiencing this living power of God in our lives, there's for many of us a very big gap. There, there's some very lean years, which you can call the wilderness years, where you're kind of just wandering and trying to figure out how this God thing works. Like, I know he's real because he did something in the past, but I'm not really experiencing this over here that I'm told is supposed to happen. I see in other people. And for some of us, it can be as long as four months to 40 years, this gap in which we're trying to get a handle on what happened in the past and what God wants to do with me now. So what we're going to see in the book of Exodus is that God powerfully delivers this people called Israel from this bondage from uh, Egypt. They're slaves there, just like we can be in bondage and enslaved to sin or to ourselves or to our idols or to things that we adore that are not God. And God delivers them. He delivers us. And the goal is to get them to the promised land where there's milk and honey flowing. That's just a, a, a euphemism for it's very prosperous. The land there does whatever you want it to do. It's like the Garden of Eden. Peaceful, harmony. Uh, everything's the way it should be. And the Israelites take 40 years to get from out of Egypt to Canaan. Was way longer than any of us wanted it to go. And when you read the Old Testament, it's way longer than you want it to go because you're like, okay, guys, come on. Seriously? So, how do we navigate this wilderness? How do we get to Canaan? I believe that Exodus has some lessons for us and that if we follow what Exodus wants to say to us, we can avoid 40 years of mindless wandering and wasted years and we can get to where God wants us sooner than later. That's going to be our goal. So we'll hit some of the highlights and we'll look at how um, Exodus is really a picture of, we always like to look at the early church in Acts. I like to say that Exodus is the earliest church. They actually predates the, the early church in Acts by quite a lot. It's the very earliest, earliest followers of God. So with that said, let's pray and we'll get into our particular message tonight. <coughs> So, Father, as that last song prayed, captivate us. We're quick to forget. We're quick to minimize, reduce, belittle 
what you have done. And sometimes the problems of life are bigger than the presence of you. I pray that you would remind and refocus us this evening upon who you are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Why do we do this? I was with my family, our typical Saturday routine. We're in Redlands at Trader Joe's, loading up on more groceries than we should probably get. And we are pushing a cart, and we have baby Atticus in one parent's arm, and Avalon making a fuss in the cart, in the seat there, and we're pushing that, and we've got bags and a car, and we're getting to the car, and we're opening up every single door possible to get groceries in and kids in as quickly as possible because the car's like an oven, and we got to get going. And as you got all this thing you're going on, right, you got babies and bags that you're trying to juggle and open doors. I, as a father, am on high alert to any possible mm, interesting characters around. It is Redlands, after all. And so... <laughs> This is going on, right? And as, as we, I'm making sure the cart doesn't ram into the car because the way parking lots do that to your car and getting bags and babies in and looking around, I notice that someone is coming up and it seems like they've, they've zeroed in on us. And so now I'm tensing up. I'm kind of on the defense. And it, as she comes closer, I realize it's a woman and she is carrying a bouquet of flowers, all the same. They're carnations or something. And I tense up and I'm like, all right, we got to get going. And so as she comes, she says something about, and I wish I could recall this better, something about, would you like to buy a flower? And I said, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have any change, which is true. I rarely carry change. But we get in the car and drive off. I feel kind of bad. And we go, we hit the freeway. And as we're driving, mm, I keep thinking about it. I'm like, wow, I could have handled that differently. And what I realized on the way home was what was bothering me was not, I didn't buy a flower from her. What was bothering me was that I didn't give her enough time to really see what she's offering. Why are you offering that? And what I realized was, before she even made contact with me, I had hardened my heart against her coming to me. I made that decision while I'm juggling babies and bags and open car doors and heat and getting home. I made that decision before she ever came. And what really convicted me was, you know... We all may have different standards on what we do with people who are in need, and sometimes it might be right and sometimes it may not. So that wasn't what bothered me, but what bothered me is I didn't humanize her. I didn't give her the time of day. I didn't consider, well, maybe there's a need behind me buying flowers. Let's just go back in the store I just came out of, and I can spare a couple more dollars on whatever might make your day better, right? But I realized that I had hardened my heart before she even came. Why do we do that? Are you with me? Why do we live as if the things that Jesus did and the people he touched and healed, why do we live as if that is a theoretical thing and it didn't really happen? Because if I lived like it happened, it would actually start to come out through my hands and feet and mouth. 
yeah, I'm not going to walk on water. I get that. But I am going to try to give people a better day or at least humanize them. Jesus looked at lepers and touched them. So why do we do that? Why do we harden our hearts against people? Why does Israel, after only a handful of months from watching God do these miracles to release them from Pharaoh's iron-clad grasp, He sends things like a horde of locusts. He darkens the sun. The firstborn of every Egyptian dies, but not of every Israelite. These strange things happen in which even pagans are saying, this our gods can't do. It's the finger of Yahweh. Why after they see that happen, after only a couple months, they're dancing naked around a golden calf saying, hey Israel, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. How, does, how do they get from this to that? How do we get from Jesus touching people's lives to hardening our hearts against strangers? May I propose to you that we get that way because we are frequent flyers when it comes to forgetfulness. I don't mean we cognitively forget. If I pulled 99% of you aside and said, hey, name one thing Jesus did in his life. You could tell me. We remember in our heads about God's works and about Jesus and who he is. But when it comes to our actions, our body seems to forget all the time. See, really what it means to remember God is to live in a way that people see God. If I don't live that way, I have forgotten him. I've considered those things I heard about as simple myths, nice stories. So when it comes to God's power, we tend to have two relationships in here. Uh, On one hand, some of us just have zero connection with God's power. God's power is foreign. Like, okay, there's a God. I hear people talk about him. I see angry preachers. I get judged for things I do or wear or say. I'm not really connecting with this power. And maybe you even gave God a try sometime, but nothing really happened. So to you, God and his power are foreign, very far away. But for many of us, God and his power is all too familiar. We gather here once a week, some of you, Go to men's breakfast or women's Bible study, and then you have other community Bible studies, or you've already gone to church this morning at another church, and you are all too familiar with how God works in people's lives. It's as if it's just become, well, you many, we've all, <laughs> do you guys remember the first time you drove up here? For some of us, it was a long time ago. And I didn't mean that in an age way. I just meant some of us have lived here a while. Like, I don't think about the roads up anymore, right? Like, I don't. We drive, and some of us think, like, it's a game of who can drive the fastest up here. <laughs> but, but do you remember, or have you been with someone, or you have definitely been behind someone, who hasn't driven up here before? It's terrifying. And you're very aware of everything, 
Everything. I remember a girl who was literally crying because there is a cliff just a few inches from the white line outside the passenger window. It's real. Or, or you're going somewhere, just forget the mountain, you're going somewhere new and you have to navigate and you're, you're really aware of street names and wow, this, the signals are different. Why are the on-ramps at this part of Orange County going spiral and on this part of the Inland Empire you have to like know if you're on the left or the right lane and it's usually on this. It, every city seems to have a different way to get on freeways and off freeways and you're like, so when you go in new places you have to pay attention, you notice these things, but then um, when you do that commute, 10 years or so, you don't notice anything except maybe the pothole that just appeared that wasn't there before. And only because it jarred your steering wheel to the left three inches. You're like, great, that's going to be 80 bucks. Uh, so we are not, we, we are very accustomed to familiarity because that's sometimes how we um, prevent ourselves from always being overwhelmed. We have to learn to adjust. But unfortunately, when we talk about the things of God and we see the power in our lives and in other people's lives, we get too familiar. And it's like, oh yeah, God saved another person. Oh yeah, I got saved a long time ago. Oh, another harvest crusade. So we can tend to forget God's power either because we never knew it out of foreignness or we're too familiar and we just don't think about it. So let's look then at Exodus 5 through 12. Don't worry, I'm not reading every verse. <laughs> Although I do encourage you to, it would be really good. It's the 10 plagues. It's, uh, it's pretty exciting, especially because what we have here is we have this matchup between Moses and Pharaoh. Now, what's really cool here is that we know from last week, Moses is representing God whom the Hebrews call Yahweh. It means, I am who I am. And Moses is representing this one God, the I am. And then he comes before Pharaoh, who, like Moses, is a man, and he represents to all of Egypt their entire pantheon of gods. So they have multitudes of gods. And Pharaoh is considered the representation of the gods. He is actually believed to be somewhat divine himself. He is the, the son of the sun god, Re, or Ra, however you want to pronounce it. So here we have the representation of Yahweh, I am, and the representation of the gods of Egypt, and they square off. This is not about an old guy with a white beard and a staff named Moses and a well-shaved guy named Pharaoh with tan skin. That's not what this matchup is about. This matchup is about the deities behind them. So when Moses and Pharaoh talk and square off, we're actually going to see the God of Israel, I am, scoring off against the multitude of Egyptian gods. This is a cosmic and divine battle. And it's going to go on and on because Pharaoh is an incredibly stubborn person. So let's see how this starts in chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron, Aaron is Moses' brother who's doing a lot of talking because Moses has a stuttering problem. Uh, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the I am, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh, representing the Egyptian pantheon, said, 
Who is this I am that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the I am. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Moses, I don't know who this deity is that you're representing. (laughs) I'm not going to bow in submission to you. I represent the Egyptian gods, which we know are the most powerful gods in the world because Egypt at this moment is the most powerful civilization in the world. Well, makes sense from Pharaoh's perspective, but you know what Pharaoh does? He's going to regret these words for the rest of his life. (laughs) Who is this I am? Oh, you want to know, Moses says? I'll show you. All right, here we go. We're going to have a lot of rounds. So, first, Moses comes back and says, I'll show you. And he puts down his staff, becomes a serpent. Pharaoh has his magicians do the same thing. Their staffs become serpents. Okay, so we can both play this game. But then Moses' staff begins to eat theirs. And we see, oh, there's a slight edge here. Then we have... Uh, the first official plague, um, which should probably be better be called maybe sign, miracle. It's, it's the sign of God's power through Moses. The first one comes and the water of the Nile River turns into blood, which is not just, ooh, look at that. You made it turn into blood. Think about this. You depend upon that Nile River for life. All of Egypt lived along the Nile River because you needed its water. And here's the cool thing, well, for them, the Nile um, overflooded its banks annually. And that caused the water to really make the land all around it fertile because it soaked in that water. And then it would reseed back and everything back to normal. They would harvest their crops and they would get some food from that. So they depended on this life and death of the Nile River in order to get food. Well, this time the Nile River is turned to blood and it's become nothing but death to them. And now they don't know what to do. Because here's the other thing we're going to see is that in each of these plagues, each of these signs of God's power, it's striking a part of Egypt that Pharaoh represents as part of the gods. Okay? There were certain gods who watched over the Nile. It was those gods' job to make it overflow its banks and to come back. Certain gods were the ones that were responsible for making the land produce crops. We're going to see that this land is going to produce flies and gnats. Um, It was the god's job to um, not let all the frogs into the city. One of their gods, um, Hecate, was actually depicted as a frog. The goddess of birth, childbirthing. So we're going to see this. um, Every time that Yahweh shows his power, the I am shows his power to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's going to have to squirm because it's attacking the deities that he represents. One more thing. Egyptians believed that as long as Pharaoh was on the throne, the entire creation would stay in order. And as soon as Pharaoh was challenged, that the creation would kind of go out of control. And that's what you see in these signs, is that the creation's going out of control. So we're going to see this a couple times here. So chapter 8, verse 1, we see the second plague, the frogs. The Lord said to Moses... Go into Pharaoh and say to him, chapter 8, verse 1, Thus says, I am, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, I will plague all your country with frogs. 
The Nile shall swarm with frogs, and they shall come up into your houses, into your bedroom, and on your toilet paper, and on your bed, I added that, and into the house of your servants, and your people, and into the ovens, and your kneading bowls, and you're going to eat your uh, cocoa puffs, and think that tasted froggy. The frogs shall come up on you, and on your people, and all your servants. So, of course, Moses is like, I don't care about your God. I'm in charge here. And so the frogs come, which I find really interesting because God does this sometimes graciously in our lives, is that he will allow too much of a good thing in order to teach us that it's not a good thing. Right? The frogs value the, uh, the <laughs> Egyptians value the frogs because the frogs were the sign of fertility, of, of um, fruitfulness for humans and land. And they even have that goddess, Hecate, the frog. Well, you want to worship that? Here you go. Have at it. Have this little idol everywhere in your house. And of course, they're sick of them. So Pharaoh wants them out. Number three, eight verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. So rather than there being food coming out of the land, these ugly gnats that bite you are coming out of the land. And this is only the third sign. And look what the, the priests of Egypt are saying in verse 19. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In other words, this is beyond our ability. We can't stop this. Good luck, Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Number four in verse 20. The Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. In other words, intercept him on his way to the shower. <laughs> That's not when you want to be confronted. But Moses knows how to get under his skin. Uh, and he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people. So then you notice in verse 22, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the I am in the midst of the earth. Thus, I'll put a division between my people and your people. So here, the first plague, this is the first plague in which we see God is now just harassing the Egyptians. The Israelites who live over in this region called Goshen, think of it like a county, um, they're not going to be bothered. Wow, now the Egyptians have to scratch that. This is not just the finger of God. This is really interesting. So number five, chapter nine, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, this gets very repetitive, but you get how... Um, Many chances Pharaoh had. Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. So Pharaoh once again hardens his heart and says, I will not. And a plague comes upon the livestock. Huge, because now... You not only have In-N-Out is in a short supply of hamburger patties, but now, which would get a lot of people upset, 
Um, but now you don't have milk and cheese. So there's no meat, there's no dairy. So you're on a vegan diet, which some people be like, yeah, the Egyptians knew what was up. And some of you, most of you are probably like, oh my goodness, I couldn't do that. So it's getting bad. Um, number six, nine verse eight. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air, the sight of Pharaoh. So he's taking ashes, he's throwing them in the air and it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So I want you to imagine just like a dust storm and for every speck of dust that lands on you, it becomes a boil. It infects your skin and becomes incredibly painful or itchy. That's awful. The power of God showing Pharaoh, you're not God, I am. And this time the boils came upon Pharaoh's magicians. So now they not only have no power to stop these signs and the power of God, now it's inflicting them and they can't get away from it. Number seven, the seventh sign, nine verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourselves before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says, I am the God of the Hebrews. Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put you out, uh, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. God's like, dude, I could have killed you by now. I'm just kind of toying with you. When are you going to wake up and realize that I am? But, verse 16, for this purpose I've raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then he goes on to say, this is what's going to happen, Pharaoh. Hail is going to come. And hail is awful because if they've already lost their livestock, meat and dairy products, hail is going to wipe out a lot of the crops. So they're down to fish from a bloody Nile River. And so the hail comes because, of course, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Chapter 10, the eighth sign locusts. Moses says, hey, just recognize that Yahweh is God. I am is God. Your gods are nothing. Let Israel go from their slavery. And Pharaoh says, nope, won't do it. And this time, um, his cabinet, his advisors plead with Pharaoh. Look at 10 verse 7. Pharaoh's servants said to him, how Long shall this man be a snare to us. Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God, the I am, uh, the I am their God. Do not, do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? How long are you going to be stubborn? You're wasting everything. You're letting it all be destroyed. Well, Pharaoh is still stubborn. So now the locusts come and locusts are a horror to every ancient civilization because they come and they eat their body weight and green vegetation every single day. And you have millions of them. So they are just devouring whatever the hail did not destroy. It's being devoured. Egypt was already ruined, they said. Now all of the scraps are done away with. So 
Number nine. Um, in verse 21, chapter 10, 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Have you ever been in darkness like that? You could just literally feel it. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Now remember, Ra is their chief god. He's the sun god. So now the chief god has been blacked out. Hey, look, he can't stop me, Yahweh says. 23, they did not see one another, nor did they rise, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but the people of Israel had light where they lived. Wow. So for the third time, Pharaoh actually says, okay, you know what? You win. I am is the God. You may go. And then as soon as the plague goes away, he changes his mind. He hardens his heart. He says, never mind, stay here. So Pharaoh keeps having this like tug of war. Where he's like, I will not give in to I am. And he's like, oh, this really hurts. Okay, I confess. I'm a sinner. Nope, nope, just kidding. Back to my old ways. Just like this, just, you know, he's trying, but he can't quite give it all up. He can't quite give Israel up. And then Moses has to threaten the final plague. And he comes to Pharaoh. He says, look, buddy, this is the last time. One last chance. I am is going to take the firstborn male from every house, even yours, Pharaoh. And then you will know, then you will know that you, Pharaoh, are not God of the earth. Pharaoh, by this time, is so upset, he screams at Moses and says, get away from me. So Moses has to carry on the plan. So let's read chapter 12. This is the 10th and final. This is the, the sign that's going to break Pharaoh, finally. Exodus 12, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. In other words, what's going to happen today is going to be so impactful, it's going to be your new year. It's going to be the first month for you of new birth. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. So each household grabs a lamb. Verse 4, if there is a household too small for a lamb, then they will share with their neighbor. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, so don't grab the runt. Grab your best. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. And you may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. So they're going to have this lamb live in the house for three days. And on the 14th, keep it till the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Why are they adopting this animal into the house and then killing it a few days later? 
Why are they doing this? Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood of that lamb and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of their houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. So they're all going to have a dinner on this night. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains in the morning you shall burn. Very detailed. It's getting somewhere. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it like a toddler ready to go play after every bite. Like, <laughs> like seriously. You guys know how kids do that? They just always want to get up and play. They're always ready to be done eating. That's how they're supposed to eat. Ready to just go. There's going to be an urgency. God's saying, you will be free tonight. Act like it. So they eat in haste. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the I am. The blood, this is the reason they put it on the doors, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Wow. So, as God comes through Egypt and the life of the firstborn is snuffed left and right, if there's blood on the doorpost of a house, he's going to pass over it and there will be life there. That's why Israel does this. When that night comes, Pharaoh, of course, loses his firstborn son. And you can imagine the heartbreak and the terror of realizing, oh, this phony prophet was right. He's not phony after all. Pharaoh is at the worst place in his life. The heir to his throne has died. How long has he been grooming him and training him and educating him? Not just all the work, but this is his own flesh and blood. Pharaoh finally lets Israel go. And so from that day forth, they celebrate a feast called Passover, in which they celebrate their victory, their freedom, their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Why does it take Pharaoh so long to get to this point? Why does Pharaoh keep hardening his heart? Actually, 20 times it mentions the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And give or take 50% of it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So this is mix and match of what's happening. All we know is that Pharaoh's heart is getting hard. Whether God is doing it or he's doing it to himself, there's been all kinds of people writing about this. Um, of course, some people really go, Whoo, see, God destines people to hell, so he did that to Pharaoh. Um, but actually what's being talked about here is, is, this is the word harden is an agricultural term in which it shows um, when you put a big burden on the yoke of an animal, and so that, that animal feels the burden and suddenly digs its hooves in and says, I'm not going to move this. This is too heavy for me. 
So you put all of this onto the yoke and the ox. The stubbornness that's in the ox comes out when he can't pull the weight. And that's the picture of what God is doing to Pharaoh. God is not taking Pharaoh's soft heart and saying, Oh, you like free will? Ah, I made it hard. Mm. He's not doing that. Actually, what God's doing is he's taking these signs and he's packing them on to Pharaoh's power like pressure so that the pressure brings out what is already inside Pharaoh. And so when the pressures come on him, we see who he really is starting to come out. Nope, not going to do it, not going to do it, not going to do it. The same thing, by the way, happens to Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. The pressure of what he's about to take to the cross, the weight of the sins of the world weighing down upon him are so great that he's in agony. And he asks the disciples to stay there and pray for him. And in Luke's gospel, we see that he's actually sweating great drops of blood because the stress and pressure is so great. But you know what Jesus does under that pressure? That pressure brings out what's already within him. He says, not, I will not let the people go. I'm going to be stubborn. He says, not my will, but your will be done. And we need to understand that God will allow pressures into our life so that we can find out what we really believe. I can say I believe all kinds of things, but I won't actually know what I believe until I live things. Because my life is actually informing my beliefs. And we see what Pharaoh really believes. I am not a God. And some of us say, God is not God. I'm the God of my own world. You wouldn't really say that, but you live like you're the God of your own world. Sometimes God will have to bring pressure to show us who we are until finally we break and say, okay. And you know what? Some of us aren't as lucky as Pharaoh to lose our son before we see who God is. Some of us are going to be hard-hearted to the day we die. Fortunately, many of us have already realized God is God, and we haven't had to go through 10 plagues. But listen, if you feel pressure in your life and things keep on coming and coming and pressing and you feel like you want to quit, it might be God trying to say, just look at what's coming out. Look at what's coming out and see maybe you do need a change. So this is in a roundabout way, the whole reason these signs happen. Why these 10 terrible signs? Why does God go through this battle, this wrestling match with Moses and Pharaoh? Why does this happen? The text tells us over and over, it's for this reason. So that you will know that I am. That's the reason for these. So that you will know that I am. Three ways. First, he says uh, in chapter 12, verse 12, we just read it. You notice how the 10th sign is supposed to, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. So what happened is the first um, born son was born in the Egyptian household and they would devote the firstborn son to any deity of their choice. Deity, protect my son, bless my son, let my son live. They would dedicate their firstborn to one of the deities. So when the Passover comes and that firstborn dies everywhere on the same night, God just showed the fraud of all the Egyptian gods. Not one of them can keep your sons alive. 
Who's God now? So the 10 signs say, every God except I am is a fraud. Every God except I am is a fraud. Second, God wants Egypt to know that he is Yahweh. If you look at 5 or 7, Excuse me, 7 verse 5. 7 5. The Egyptians shall know, the Egyptians shall know that I am the I am when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. That's why I'm doing this. I want Egypt to know who's really God. And then finally, he's doing this so that Israel can know who God is. Look at 10, verse 1. 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And, I'm showing these signs, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know, you Israel and your children and your offspring, all of them will know that I am Yahweh. I am the I am. This is why they're going through all of this, is so that they will know who is God and what he's like. That they would see firsthand and experience personally the saving, delivering, redeeming power of I am. And that they can tell their children about this power and their children. This is the moment when you realize God is speaking to you and you meet Jesus and you say, I need a savior. This is the same moment. You recognize that he is God and you see the power that he has. We experience this through Jesus. God realizes that we needed another way to meet with him. And so Jesus comes to the earth and Jesus does like these 10 signs against Egypt. Jesus comes and has signs against the devil. He comes and he releases people from demon possession he comes and he gives ear, hearing to the deaf and sight to the blind and he helps the lame walk. He's redeeming and rescuing people and he's angering all of the powers that be, all the so-called pharaohs around. The religious leaders like, you can't do that. You can't touch that person. You can't say that. What do you, and he says, I forgive you. And like, you can't do that. He's doing all of these things which are signs to show us that the power of God has come to humankind. And then as Egypt experienced death and Israel was saved through the blood of that lamb, Jesus comes to the cross. And the New Testament tells us that he was God's lamb. He's the one who's died. And through his blood, we are saved from death. And it goes beyond that. So we not only have the life and signs and miracles of Jesus and his death on the cross, but we have his resurrection and we have his ascension to the Father at the right hand in heaven. 
his, his life and signs and miracles, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension up unto authority next to the Father. These are all of our signs of the power of God in and through Jesus. Jesus showing us again and again and again that the gods that you think are powerful, the things that you think are worth serving, they're nothing. They're nothing. I'm the true power. I stood before the devil and won. I stood before the Jews and won. I stood before the Romans and won. I stood before death and won. Nothing stopped him. And we see again and again, life, 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 love, love, love. And we see power display here, power display there, power display, power display. And if we have any doubt that there is the power of God at work in our lives, we can see it. We can see it in the past. We need to learn to appropriate it in the present. But we have to remember This is what God is going to say to the Israelites again and again. Remember what I did to the Egyptians. Look back and remember what I did to them. We need to look back and remember the power of God in and through Jesus. Not just what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, but what he's done in your life too. We have to remember, but by remembering, what do we mean again? Not just, oh yeah, I I recall Jesus. Yeah, that's right. I doubt any of you have forgotten that name. You hear it in a curse word so many times, you can't forget it. You remember the name, but do you remember the power? Is it actually coming out in your life? Is it demonstrable? That we must remember. So I titled this message, You Will Want to Remember This. Because the plagues, Israel wanted to remember. And when they forgot, they didn't cognitively forget, but they made golden calves and said, oh, this is the God that delivered us. They remember the power. They just forgot who the power belonged to. We remember Jesus, but sometimes we forget what Jesus was about. And we forget that we belong to Jesus. There's this powerful scene I'll make it brief because I know some of you probably haven't seen it. Um, But in Disney's The Lion King, there's this really powerful scene where Simba is to be the king. His dad Mufasa dies. So Simba's the heir to the throne. But he doesn't want it for a number of reasons. So he runs away. And he learns this phrase, you've probably heard this, Hakuna Matata. It means no worries. And this was his drug of choice, if you will, for that time period. He was so ashamed of things that he thought he was guilty about that he's on the run and hides forever. He's refusing to be the king to display the power that he knows he's supposed to. So he's hiding out saying, oh, no worries. I'm just in this place. I don't have to think about it. But then through a series of events, he's called back to his calling. And the the moment that makes him realize, I need to go back, is when he gets this vision of his father And his father says, Simba, you have forgotten who you are and so have forgotten me. And Simba says, no, I could never forget you. You've been on my mind ever since you died. Of course he didn't forget him. But what is is the father saying? Your actions by running away from your calling have demonstrated you have forgotten who I am. We remember Jesus. We remember God. But do you remember who he is? Do you remember that he is the supreme power of the universe? So the scene ends with Simba. Remember, remember, remember. 
And of course, he goes and takes back the throne. He finally remembers. Brothers and sisters, the power that God is working in us should be unforgettable. I want you to turn, if you can, to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. It's the New Testament. It's after Corinthians, after Galatians, Ephesians. If you see Philippians, Colossians, or the other things that start with T, you're too far. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, there's this guy named Paul who's writing this letter to this group of Christians in a city called Ephesus. And what he's writing to them is that he wants them to remember or to uh, literally know experientially the power of God at work in their lives. So in Ephesians 1, he says, I pray to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that you may have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and that the eyes of your heart may be open to know, he prays for three things, one, that you would know the hope of your calling, two, that you would know the riches of God's inheritance in us, so we have this great calling, God finds us incredibly valuable, and then third, and this is the one I really want you to see, he says, I pray that you will know Verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What does that power look like? We talk all the time, God's powerful. That's a familiar phrase. What do you mean by God's powerful? What does it mean that his immeasurable great power is at work within you? This is mind-blowing. This is what he means. He continues. According, so this power is according to the working of his great might that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rulers and powers. Wait, what? Okay, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power, which is at work within you. What power is that? It's the same power that, by the way, he used to raise Jesus from the dead. And one more step, to elevate him to the right hand where he's above every single ruler and authority. These are rulers and authorities in heaven and on earth that rule over galaxies and governments and parenting and paychecks. Every part of the universe is covered under this authority. There's nothing underneath this. Death was the highest authority. He conquered death through the power of God and then was ascended to rulership so that nothing could ever challenge or rival his authority. This is the power. The death raising, um, power-inducing, putting you on a throne over galaxies and governments kind of power that Paul says, I want you to know that's at work in you, by the way. That's what he means by the immeasurable greatness of his power at work within you. Whoa. So suddenly you realize this is some incredible power, overwhelming, exceeding, boundless power, immeasurable, inconceivable power at work within us. That is what we need to remember. You will want to remember the plagues in Egypt because we want to remember that that's the same Jesus who walked on earth and did miracles and died and rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. That is what we need to remember.
So why do we harden our hearts against people? Why do we harden our hearts against situations? Because we forget. We don't actually remember this. Had I remembered that power within me as a woman approaches me, what could I not have done? I mean, I could have done anything. So we need to remember, here's how. If you're like me, to remember things, I need reminders. <laughs> we need some reminding. Now, I don't just mean like, oh yeah, I recall that. Thank you for the reminder. What I mean by reminding is that, yes, but also literally, if you look at remind, it's about changing the mind. It's about bringing the mind back to what it should have been. See, we're forgetful. We have amnesia. God can cure that disease to help us remember who he is. So we need reminding. And I have seven reminders for us, seven things that can hopefully, um, hopefully remind us. Um, not all these are for all of you. So just take them and then you choose two or three, one, two or three that'll help you. So it's kind of for a broad audience, right? How can we be reminded? Seven ways, seven reminders. First, pray that power prayer we just read. The one in Ephesians, pray that prayer. From verse, chapter 1, verse 15, all the way to the end of chapter, verse 23. Pray that prayer. I'm serious. So there was this time when I was called upon in an urgent situation. These people really need your help. And uh, this person is describing to me what they've, what, what's happened. And I'm thinking, God, who am I? This stuff is way beyond me. I don't have this within me. And then guess what? Because I've been praying this prayer. Ephesians comes into my mind. And I had to pray, literally as I'm walking toward the situation, I was praying, God, remind me that the power that rose Jesus from the dead and put him as the authority above everything is in me. Wow, did I need that. Pray that prayer. Number two. Read the Gospels. Seriously. Um, unfortunately, you know, we don't get to teach through the whole Bible every year. So you don't get through the Gospels once a year at least. <laughs> and some of you are in a one-year reading plan. That's great because that means you'll get to the Gospels at least once in the year. But really? You, you want to look at the power of God in Jesus, our model, and just once a year look at that? I, I really think the Gospels are the most important thing we can read in the Bible. They are the climax and heart and center of the Scriptures. Why don't we read the Gospels more regularly? Why don't we read each of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with the, with the seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter? In fact, there's an author who actually corresponds the character of each of those Gospels with the four seasons. I haven't read it. I'd love to read it. It's on my list. But I think that's an interesting idea. What if we just seasonally lived in the four Gospels? God saw the life of Jesus being put in our minds so importantly that he didn't limit the story of Jesus to one Gospel. He gave us four. That should tell you something. Let's read the Gospels regularly. And if the Gospels become overly familiar, try a new translation. Try a new translation every time you read them. You might be blown away by what stands out to you. We can get too familiar. In fact, if you're like me, you can kind of predict the words that are coming. Um, sometimes I'm just like, oh yeah, I know that story. So try another translation. Make it fresh. Give it a new perspective. Um, so that's power prayer. Read the Gospels. Second, recount the works of God. Recount them. I mean third. Recount the works of God. Psalm 9 says, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. That's a great way to pray. That's how the Psalms pray. You might only be able to start with one. That's okay. Because the more we learn to recount the works of God, I think the more we're going to start to see works that are happening that we were just overlooking. 
get used to counting them, recounting them. And hey, God has done a lot. Those are great reminders. Fourth, listen to worship music. That's surprisingly simple, but it's surprisingly seductive in the way it gets us thinking about the power of God. Music gets into you. And it's always thinking about what God has done and his power and who he is. And it will not only remind you, but it gets into you. Um, I can't underestimate, I'm sure I can't, the power of being raised in a home where Christian music was playing all the time. And if you are a person that don't really know any of the songs that Richard sings in the worship team, you know what? You really do need to start listening because it gets into you. Some of you are like, I know all of them. I'm so sick of them. Fine. You're in a different season. That's great. I get it. Um, you might also have no clue where to start with worship music because you're like into ACDC and all kinds of things. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, ask Richard. Richard is like a music resource machine. He's like a library when it comes to Christian music. So just ask Richard and he can hook you up with some good things to listen to. Even if you like rap, you've showed me a pretty cool artist. <laughs> and I don't really like rap, but I have to admit he was talented. Um, so listen to worship music. So five, what if we tried, imagine if we tried campfire fellowship, campfire fellowship. So we talk about fellowship at church all the time. Like, yeah, let's get together and have fellowship. And like, okay, we talk and like have small talk as Christians. Small talk's great. We need that. But, but what if sometimes we organize campfire fellowship? I don't mean literally we go make a campfire, but think about what a campfire is. There's something we gather around. It gives light in a very dark setting, and it gives warmth in a cold setting. And we gather around that because we need it, because we like it, because it's attractive. And as we come to it, we come together. And what tends to happen around campfires is that we tend to share life and we share stories. What if our fellowship was like a campfire in which we began to share life stories about how God worked in our lives and how God did that and how amazing God's power is. And as we hear it from other people, we're reminded, yes, God is the great power. Number six, what if we practiced, now again, not all this is for all of you, but what if we practiced rituals? Now, if you come from a Catholic tradition, you're probably freaked out by that. You're like, I'm not going back to Rome. That's okay. Don't do that. But before there was a Catholic church, the early church practiced rituals. And one of their main rituals was crossing themselves every time they entered or exited a door. So we're talking the first hundred years of the church, the first hundred, 200 years, they crossed themselves in and out of doors. Why? They wanted to remind themselves of the power present with them whenever they entered or left a building. Whatever is going to meet me inside or outside, the power of Christ is with me. And that's a powerful thing. If we're, if we're forgetful, you just do something like this and wow. It's a reminder. Some things work for you. Some things don't work. Some people pray on their knees to remember what prayer is about. Some people think that that's just too legalistic. It's different for us. But if you're open to that and think it might help you practice some sort of ritual that gets the body in sync with the beliefs. And then finally, seven, seventh reminder we do this every week. We're going to do this right now as the worship team comes up. It's the most obvious reminder of all. Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me. As he tore the bread and said, this is my body, and poured the wine and said, this is my blood. We take communion, not just because it makes God happy, nor do we take communion because it somehow magically turns us into Christ so that we don't have to do anything. 
We take communion as reminders. Yes, to recall the life of Jesus and the power of God in Jesus, but also to reshape our minds into what Christianity looks like. It looks like brokenness. It looks like giving our lives. It looks like receiving life from another. It looks like recognizing we're not the power, that we must bow before the I am and say, you are the power and you've demonstrated it. This is, the communion is our Passover meal. As Israel ate that meal annually to celebrate their deliverance, we take communion regularly to celebrate our deliverance. And to say, God, I want the power that saved me to be at work in my life now. Yes, you're ruling over galaxies and governments. I want that power to be ruling over my parenting and my paychecks, over my TV and work and all the little things like clipping your fingernails. I want that power present wherever I am and whatever I'm doing. 